0: last summer anyways. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 3. I'm just going to kick into the story here. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is teaching the crowds and he says to them in verse 7, he said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance and don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. And he replied to them, to the one who has two shirts, he must share with someone who has none." And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he told them, Don't hold any collection more than what you've been authorized. And some soldiers also questioned him, What should we do? And he said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. And let me just, a little phrase at verse 15. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all were questioning with their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. It's been a while since, it's been a couple weeks since I preached, so I thought if we're going to talk through some things, let's go ahead and just embrace some weirdness and do something weird to start out this morning. So I'm going to ask one of the youth, I'm going to ask Sierra to come up here and she's going to help me out. So Sierra, if you want to make, make your way up. She, uh, she volunteered for this last Wednesday, I had David ask her. So you can pick your spot, wherever you want to stand on stage, what, what feels most comfortable to you? All right, perfect. Great job. Face everybody. Say hello. They said hello back. It's good. So, Sierra, how much How much do you know about parenting? A little bit? A little bit. So here's, I just I just need you to help me hold some stuff here. So let's, I was trying to think. You know, one of the top things you should do when you're parenting is uh, read books to learn. So here's a couple books. Those are just symbolic for all the learning that you're going to have to do. But when it comes to having a baby, you always need to be prepared for a lot of things. So obviously, you're going to need diapers. You know, you need Need, you always need more diapers than what you think you need. So here's some diapers for you. Um, and then, you know, sometimes things come out the top end and you need burp rags and stuff too. So here's a burp rag and a bib um, and all of that. And sometimes diapers get a little gross and so you get some diaper rash cream. That, that helps all of that. And then sometimes it gets so gross that they just need a whole new change of clothes. And so you got to bring changes of clothes. So here's some, here's some changes of clothes for you if you hold on to those for me. Now, this right here, this is pretty cool. This is a wrap, and it's uh, it's the wrap around you to help hold the baby, so you can actually do other things. So it's good to have a wrap on you just in case, you know, the baby doesn't want to be in a stroller, but you've got to walk around. So here's here's a wrap. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you get really thirsty when you're helping take care of a baby, so you need some water just to have for you. But the baby also needs a bottle, so you've got to hold on to that. And if the baby cries, he's going to need a pacifier. So... Oh, and then we forgot the baby wipes. There's baby wipes for you. Now, if you ever go on a trip with your baby, you need like blackout curtains because babies sleep in dark really well. So these blackout curtains really help for, for keeping the room dark. And this is a baby monitor. So the baby monitor, that way you can put them in another room, so we'll hold that there. Of course, you need shoes, little shoes. And then the baby always needs a good toy. So this is, this is Griffin's Griffin. See, oh, isn't that, isn't that adorable? So here you go, you're doing great. Oh, you dropped your water. Here, let's get your water back, let's get your water back. Oh, you dropped a griffin. All right, we'll let you hold that. We'll set the griffin back up here. Are you good? All right, you just hang tight for a little bit. (laughs) Don't worry about it, we'll just leave that on on the ground. You just just hang tight. You guys recognize, uh, realize that this is my fourth Christmas series here? This is Mark's, isn't it weird how time goes? This is fun. Yeah, thank you, I always enjoy Christmas stuff. so three years ago, we did, a, we did a Christmas series that I called Geographical Christmas. If you remember, if you were here, we talked through the different locations, Bethlehem, Egypt, Nazareth, and how, what God was doing. And then two years ago, we did Isaiah 9-6, and, and the phrases, the names for Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, And we talked through different sermons on each of those names. And last year, we just opened up the book of Matthew. And from the genealogy onward, talked through the story of Jesus. So this year, I want to do a little bit different. Um, From the top, we're not really focusing on the nativity story this year. I'm focusing more on this concept that we call Advent. Um, And so Advent, if you don't know, is just a Latin word that means coming or or a Latin word that means arrival. And so Advent season is the season we anticipate, we wait on, we cherish, we celebrate Jesus' arrival. Traditionally, we do that in the manger scene. But when we read the Bible, the biblical narrative actually includes three cases of Advent, of Jesus coming. The first is, of course, the manger scene. There's also him coming into his ministry as the Messiah. That's what we're looking at today. And then there's the second coming, the advent of Jesus' coming to set the world to rights. So once Luke tells you of the first advent of Jesus' birth, he introduces the character of John the Baptist who's going to make way for the second advent. So here in Luke 3, John has drawn in these crowds, and as they are awaiting the arrival of the ministry of the Messiah, they're all on edge. Could this be, when's the Messiah coming? They ask the question to John, what should we do? In preparation for the Messiah, John, what should we do? And he says, to the one with plenty, simplify and share. To the rich tax collector, be mindful and generous. To the powerful soldier, be content and do justice. These are the themes that we're going to be talking about this Advent season. So, on that note, how you feeling? You want to do a quiz? So you remember any of the sermon series I preached before? You weren't even here, so this is harder for you. I, th- I talked about them. You don't remember one of them? Do you remember what the word Advent means? You don't remember what the word Advent means? That's okay. You're doing exactly what I want you to do because you're proving my point how I want it to be proved. Thank you so much. You have done a great job. You can, you can put them back, back in here. Just drop it all in the bag. Great job, Sierra. You did amazing. All right. You want to just take it and set it in the pew and you can go back to your pew. Perfect. It's a lot easier to carry all that with a bag, isn't it? Here's my point, and why Sierra did a great, great job. When your life is so hectic, when there's so much to focus on, and hold, and keep in balance, and keep in check, it is really hard to listen. It's really hard to pay attention. It's really hard to know what God is trying to say to you, and I feel like this has become the coverall of what our Christmas looks like, that we are balancing everything. Growing up, for me, Christmas was always crazier than I ever realized. Um, You know, I, I grew up with divorced parents, and so our Christmas, my Christmas usually looked something along the lines of Christmas Eve. We would go over my mom's parents' house, and we would have Christmas with that side of the family, and we would open gifts. And to the most frustrating way to open gifts in a kid's mind is that everyone has to go one at a time. It's horrible. Just let me open my presents. But we had to do that. And so usually we would get home late Christmas Eve. We would go to bed. We would wake up to gifts from Santa and my mom and my stepdad on Christmas morning. We would open those presents. My grandparents would then come over to our house. We would have a Christmas kind of early breakfast, and then about an hour later, my dad and my stepmom would come, and he would pick me and my sister up to take back to, to his house. And so we would have all our presents. We would then leave those presents there and then go to my dad's house. The first stop on Christmas Day was at his parents'. We would do Christmas the same way with that side of the family, one at a time, present opening. It was horrible. And then after that, we would go to my stepmom's parents' house, and we would do Christmas, th- Christmas Day there for dinner. And then after Christmas dinner, we would usually get home just in time at my dad's house to go to bed. And you may not know this, but did you know Santa makes a second lap around the world the day after Christmas for all the stepchildren? Um, So Santa would come back to my dad's house and my stepmom's house. And on December 26th, we would open presents with my dad and my stepmom. And then my dad's parents would come, and this was Christmas every single year, the 24th, 25th, 26th. Five family houses just over and over because it was the reality of the Christmas I grew up in. And to be honest, most of those Christmases blend together. I, of course, I have some cherished childhood memories within that model, but what's interesting is thinking back over this, for me, probably the most memorable Christmas, or at least one of the most memorable Christmases, uh, my dad and stepmom had showed up Christmas morning to my mom's house to, to pick me up, uh, but there had been this horrible ice storm where my dad lived and almost the entire town was out without power. So the only person in town that had power was my uh, stepmom's aunt, my, my great aunt. So we went to her house instead, and we opened a couple presents, and then that night we went home, and for the next two days there was no power. We just lived without power for two days. And I remember that Christmas for a couple reasons. One, I remember distinctly the Sega Genesis game I opened. That's a video game system from like the early 90s, if you don't know. I opened a video game called Primal Rage, And the only reason I remember is not because it was a good game, but I remember reading the manual by, like, candlelight, because that's all I could do. The TV didn't work, and nothing turned on. So I remember that. I remember the meals we would have and, and playing games by the candlelight and things like that. And reflecting back, I think the thing that made that Christmas so memorable to me was how calm it was. Now, granted, at seven years old, I'm sure I did not recognize the, the joy of that at the time, and probably spent far more time complaining and whining and why won't the electricity work than what I remember. But something in being forced to give up that hectic schedule for candlelit board games and family time caused me to remember with far more distinguished that Christmas than almost any other Christmas. You see, we've come to live in this reality where we've become convinced that the best life is actually lived in complexity and the necessity of busyness. That there's things to do, there's to-do lists a mile long, and that's how life is meant to be lived. And to be fair, right, I mean, the hectic Christmases of my childhood and the abundant needs of my son are not things that can just be simply erased. Griffin needs diapers, and I needed to spend Christmas with my dad But is there an underlying concern worth addressing here? That try as we may to balance and to hold on to all the things that we think we need, the result is almost always the same. That we miss Jesus when we concern ourselves with busyness and possessions. That it's actually these things at Christmas that we tend to celebrate that are the very distractions from what Jesus has called us uh, what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be. See, this is the most ironic fashion is that it's typically Christmas season where this truth becomes even more prevalent. And it's been systematized into the DNA of our culture as we've traded the worship of God for the worship of consumption and this desire for, for more. And so we settle into this nature, this idea that consumerism reigns. Which then screams at us like a blaring siren that the prevailing reality that you and I live in is scarcity. There's actually not enough out there for us to have what we need. So we need to get more and more. And with the constant scream of scarcity comes this ever-present reality and emotion of fear. And this is something that businesses capitalize on, fear of missing out, or what we now call FOMO, is a real marketing strategy that lots of companies employ because if they can get you to fear, they can get you to consume. Because that's the solace. That's the solution to that emotion. So consumerism yells that everything is scarce and there's not enough to go around, and the feeling of everything being scarce puts this feeling of fear, and the solution to fear is just more desire worried you're not going to have enough, buy more. You'll feel better. Get get that new outfit. Buy that better car. Get that upgraded house. Get that meal at that restaurant. Feeling restless? Consume. And Christmas has become the hallmark holiday season, and I mean that pun so seriously. The hallmark holiday season in which that happens, consumerism happens easiest and best. So here's just some general statistics for you to kind of clarify all of this. Since 2008, I have a little bar graph here that I'll show you. Since 2008, U.S. holiday retail sales have went up every single year. In fact, the only year it dropped was the 2007 to 2008, and that was, I think, to do with the financial housing crisis that was looming over things. But since then, things have been continually rising, so much so, that last Christmas, Americans spent about $936 billion. that's an, you can't fathom that amount of money, right? Like I, I, you can say the number and it doesn't mean anything. So to put that in perspective, and you can see this on the chart, last year we spent double on Christmas than what we did in 2004. 2004 wasn't that long ago, guys. I mean, I was alive. So it's 20 years ago. And we've doubled the amount of spending. And maybe you could say, yeah, well, that's inflation and maybe some economic turmoil, and obviously there's cause behind that. But it's just a small piece of evidence of a much larger trend we find just sweeping across our nation that in in the last 50 years, the average American house has increased 40% in size, that the average American woman now has about 103 items in her closet when in 1930 it was nine? Children in America make up 4% of the world global population of kids and yet consume 40% of the global population of toys. And we spend on average as Americans $4.5 trillion a year on non-essential goods, meaning things we don't really need. So while it's worth noting, Jesus is never anti-wealth, and it's clear in the Bible that his inner circle of disciples include poor fishermen and a rich tax collector, that the early church was absolutely made up of Jew and Greek, slave and free, male, female, rich and poor, he and John both note How the casual consumption of more and more possessions and the continual reality of being more and more busy is incompatible with this thing we call Christian faith. And I say this with all due respect, but the American dream does not mesh with the biblical call for our lives. This dream of being richer and having more possessions, of gaining and accumulating more things. does not line up with the way of Jesus. And we'll get to Jesus, but for now we land back at Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, John has come, John the Baptist, has come to spotlight the advent of Jesus' messianic ministry and is thereby spotlighting Jesus as the Messiah. That, That the Messiah has come, the Savior of the world, God incarnate, come to earth to fulfill all of the biblical prophecies and to gather all of nations under one family, the family of Yahweh. And John calls the people to come and see what's going to be hidden in plain sight because it was that way at his birth, a baby born known only by shepherds, and it would come to be that way in his ministry, a Nazarene that would be the savior of the world, a man only to be noticed by those willing to look. And with this, John exclaims to the crowd, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath? Your ancestry does nothing earning your right in the kingdom of God because God could raise up children from these rocks if he so choose. No, the ax is at the root of the tree. And we say, Merry Christmas. And you're probably thinking, Philip, why, like, Luke 2 was one chapter behind that. Why are you in Luke chapter 3? Now, just some context to this, Luke's, or, sorry, John's words are not as harsh as they come across to us now 2,000 years and a couple languages later. He's definitely critical in the text, and that's true, but he's speaking well within the prophetic tradition of the ancient Israel scriptures, and so this is the very reason that he's drawing upon these images and these realities that were very familiar with the crowds he was talking to, that when they respond, they don't respond with uh, this heart of being offended or or putting up defenses. They they don't say, how dare you speak to us that way? Who do you think you are? No, they, they ask, verse 10, what should we do? You have to remember, these people are coming to John the Baptist because they want to repent. They recognize the inadequacies in their own life, and they're saying, if there's another way, John, tell us. We want to turn our hearts and follow the new way, so we don't want to be like that. John, what do we And John, having called them to bear fruit, consistent with their hearts of repentance, offers these three instructions. To the one with plenty, simplify and share. To the rich tax collector, be mindfully generous. And to the powerful soldier, be content and do justice. So how do we properly respond to the Messiah? It's what we've always taught. Repent. That's the word we use to this day. Jesus has come. He's offered his salvation to you. So repent, turn around. It's not just this religious word, it's a literal word that means to turn from your sins and embrace the new life Jesus has offered. It's practical, it's swim against the current, realign yourself to a set of values that are radically countercultural, both to first century Jewish culture and 21st century American culture. Jesus' way of life does not line up with either. Live simply. Live generously. Do you want to experience Jesus this Christmas? Are you concerned that another Christmas might come and go and leave you once again thinking, I don't even know where the magic went because I still haven't encountered Jesus Are you concerned about missing him amidst a busy schedule and overloaded to-do list? Then I think John's instructions apply to you. Now, while we talk into this a little bit, let me just preface all of this with saying this is not something that I feel adequate to teach on in a lot of ways or to preach on. Uh, Literally yesterday, I I was sitting around just looking at everything in our house. And granted, it's Christmas season. We have Amazon packages being delivered. We have gifts to wrap. It's that time of year. It It is what it is. And I'm looking around at the clutter that has become our house, and Haley says, what's wrong, and I'm like, I just, I can't shake this feeling that I'm preaching about something tomorrow morning that I'm not practicing. And I don't even know where to start, and luckily my wife is way smarter than me, so she goes, I think we just start with the closet. So we take time yesterday just to clean out one of our closets, and that is a very tiny little step, but we have two boxes of things that we have to get rid of now. So, that's just how it goes. So so please do not hear me as I talk through this as like, I know how to be simple and practice this well. It is not that. I suffer from the same reality that many of you do and that this is the culture I've been raised in. I want more stuff. I'm asking for more stuff for Christmas. And yet Jesus has come in and said, Philip, if you wanna see me, you gotta be willing to practice what I call you to practice. Chapter three, verse 11, John replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Don't miss this. For the people preparing for the advent of Jesus' messianic ministry, John's first instruction is not prayer and quiet time, it is far more practical. His first instruction is closets and pantries. Do you want to see Jesus? In a culture defined by busy, hectic complexities, live in simplicity. Simplify and share. Experiencing Jesus requires us to simplify and share. Now, if John is correct in his assessment and his instruction, it would only then follow that Jesus would come onto the scene, live in full accordance to that same lifestyle, and teach his followers to do the same. So do we find Jesus implementing the same instruction that John gives? Absolutely. There's a myriad of passages in your Gospels about this, but the one I want to just focus on quickly is in Mark chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can go over there. Mark chapter 4 is the classic parable of the sower and the seed. So Jesus is metaphorically telling about how his teachings tend to fall in one of four environments. And depending on the environment that it falls in will determine on whether or not that seed flourishes or whether it dies. And so he he begins to talk about how this looks. And in regards to just the third one, that's all I want to focus on. This is the seed that falls among the thorns. In verse 18, Jesus explains this. Others are like seeds sown among the thorns. These are the ones that they hear the word. But the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus' warning is blatant. Busyness, possessions, desires, they can distract from what matters. I mean, would you agree with that, Right? That, that having and wanting and doing stuff can, at times, potentially affect some people. I mean, not me, of course, but some people, it can affect and distract them from their God-ordained meaning of life. I mean, I have a handle on it, but for them, it might be a distraction. I understand. I mean, for the young girl holding all the things that a baby needs, that might be a distraction. Luckily for me, I'm above that surely there's a problem. For everyone out there, including me, because one serious glance at our surrounding and our culture, we should recognize we are rooted in dangerous soils as worries and stress and busyness are the abject norm of how our culture functions as wealth deceives us again and again into thinking that we'll finally find fulfillment in that next purchase, or when we make that next status tier, or when we finally finish this stage of life and we never have to take another final again, then life will get better. And as desires root into the depths of our hearts for anything and everything other than Jesus, the result is clear. Jesus is clear, even at Christmas, especially at Christmas. That the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things will choke out the word. Do you want to hear Jesus? Simplify. And share. So if Jesus has called us then to this radically new way of life, what are we supposed to do? We're going to jump back over to Luke chapter 3. We'll go back to this command one more time. What should we do? The crowds ask. And he replied, to the one who has two shirts, he must share with someone who has none. And to the one who has food, he must do the same. The instruction is clear. Recognize your abundance and give figure out what competes with your devotion to Jesus, and then give it away as you simply live in the word of Jesus. Now, you might be saying, come on, Philip, like we, we live in Portalis. It's not like we're entrenched in the lavish lifestyle of those people over there. I mean, go to Texas, they got way more money than we got. It's funny, over Thanksgiving, uh, we, took, uh, we took Griffin on like the Parade of Texas, so we went from here to Houston, from Houston to uh, east of Dallas, from that to Grandberry to the other side of Dallas, and then we came back, so just giant loop of Texas. Uh, but as we were traveling, we stopped at, so the first place we stopped was Haley's uh, aunt and uncle, and her uncle is now the, uh, he's a retired former president of an oil company outside of Houston. Um, and worked his way up very hard. Um, I'm not trying to be critical of any of that, but he was the president of an oil company, you can infer. They live on a golf course in a wonderful house. I mean, it's amazing. And then we leave from there, and we go to her other aunt and uncle's house, and in a really tragic catastrophe, uh, their daughter had uh, been hit by a drunk driver in Farmington a couple years back uh, and survived, and then through that uh, had the biggest medical payout in New Mexico history through that, and so they have Uh, started to help take care of her and her kids. And anyways, long story short, they got enough money that they bought a mansion on a lake outside of that. And uh, now they have these kids that live in this mansion with a pot-bellied pig. It is like the Beverly Hillbillies. And I say that because that's what they told me. So that's just straight from them. So we go from there to this situation, and we stay in their guest house also on the lake. And then we travel from there to Granbury, where we stayed with an old, uh, older family friend. That um, she, She's a widow, but she's, uh, her husbands have left her. She had a couple um, husbands that have passed away. And so she lives on a golf course there in Granbury. And I remember getting home and thinking like, God, I could be, I could do all of this if like that's all I had. But I live in Portales, God. What am I supposed to give Now I begin to pray and think through this and think about just an inventory of what I do have. Two cars that run really well that I don't ever have to worry about starting and whether or not they'll start. I have a warm bed that I go to sleep in every single night. In fact, it's so warm that I usually have to kick off covers because I also have heat in my house that keeps my house at the exact temperature I want. And I don't even have to split wood. I just push a button. I have a speaker in my kitchen that plays music whenever I tell it to, whatever song I want it to play. I have hot water that I can shower in and pretty much cold water that I can drink. And I know it's Portalis, but I'm still not all that worried about my water and my faucet running out. I have never been thirsty without having water to drink, and I've never been hungry without having food to eat. When I wake up, I never ask, will I eat today? But I always ask, what will I eat today? And over Thanksgiving, I met a friend in Houston for coffee, and I paid $6 for a coffee. Looking at the scriptures and noting the statistics, the conclusion is self evident. I live in abundance. I live in more abundance than what most people, the vast majority of this people on this earth, could ever even imagine. I am the plentiful, to which John says, Do you want to encounter the Messiah correctly? Simplify and share. Now, point of clarity, and we'll begin to wrap up. This does not necessarily mean that you should be taking a vow of poverty, that you should sell everything. That is the command Jesus gives to the young uh, ruler in Luke chapter 18, the rich young ruler. But it's not a universal command that Jesus gives. In fact, when we read the Bibles, we seem to find that Peter keeps his house in his boat because there's times that Jesus and his disciples stop and stay in Peter's house. Uh, That after the crucifixion, Peter goes back to fishing, so he seems to at least have access to a boat and to the things that he owned. So it wasn't a universal command. Plenty of people in the other church used their houses and their fields to provide meals and worship within the church. So this is not first a call to give. Please understand me. This is not first a call to give. It is first a call of heart posture. Simplifying and sharing always begins with an inward reality that flows outward. There's a book called Abundant Simplicity by Jan Johnson. She's far more of an expert on this than I am, but this is a quote from her book because I think she she gets this perfectly right. Simplicity is not a discipline in itself, but a way of being. It is letting go of things others consider normal. It's an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and God's kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness and it disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. We practice simplicity when we intentionally arrange our lives around God, what he is doing in uh, in us and in this world, and we let the rest drop off. Living in simplicity does not begin with a garage sale or a goodwill donation box. It begins with an honest, personal reflection in your own heart. To just reflect on a few questions. Does my stuff, being the stuff I have or all the stuff I desire, does it compete for my allegiance to Jesus? And on top of that, do I have more than I need? And if the answer to either of those questions is yes, the inevitable question that John and Jesus would both expect me to ask is, who do I share it with? And then we can start exploring, where do we set limits on personal consumption? Not in some attempt to be noble or holier than all those other people, but just in this recognition and adherence to our Savior who has come to rescue us from the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. That is what John's opening instruction is all about. Do you want to see Jesus? Are you prepared for the Messiah? Those with two shirts, give one, and that those with plenty of food, give it away. Simplify and share. Now, this is not a one-size-fits-all practice. Please understand this. There is plenty of nuance to work through, especially around this Christmas season and Christmas time. For some of you, it might literally be cleaning out just a closet a weekend And then finding things to donate and give away. It might be cleaning out pantries and serving food. Although, let me just speak to that reality. What we've done in our modern world, in I think a somewhat tragic way, and I understand the efficiency of it all, is that we've drawn a dividing line between us and those people that we need. So we'll take all of our things and we go give it to some other organization. And then that organization deals with the needy people so we don't have to deal with the needy people. That's never what the Bible allows for, that's never what the Bible entails. If you are going to do this the way Jesus envisions you do this, it is actually to reach down to that needy person in a hand-to-hand contact, personal relationship with them. And if you don't have a relationship with somebody like that, and I'm preaching, again, just as much to myself here, then you need to start praying about, God, who do I find that I can help and give to? And that's not in some needs of, I am going to give to this person because I am better than, it's not that. But it's, God, what you've given to me, I need to find a way to replicate, and Call me to somebody. Let me bless somebody as you have blessed me. For others, it might be a spare bedroom that's given through fostering or or adopting. Maybe it's setting a spending limit on coffee or fast food and then taking the calculated uh, excess and giving it away to Lottie Moon or to something that you are passionate about. Maybe it's just unplugging the electricity this Christmas and taking the time to slow down and simplify through candlelight and family time. Maybe it's some menial task that you put a, a spiritual cover on, and you say, I'm going to make this spiritual. I love this book. This is a, it's called Every Moment Holy. It's a book of liturgies, and by that I just mean really fancy prayers, like very poetic-style prayers. Uh, and they have so many good ones, and I sit here and I cry through it all the time. Uh, they have one that's for the loss of a pet, and I made the mistake of reading that uh, the day we put our dog down this summer, and I cried through the whole thing, just snot and tears all over this. Uh, they have a few that are for, um, for change, the changing of diapers. I cry through those every time I read them now. Um, but so, so anyways, Christmas gifts. I, I, they didn't pay me, but this is amazing, and it's one that's, I think, worth having, and they have a couple volumes. But I wanted to just read this prayer over you. This one is A Liturgy Before Shopping. So... I feel like it's pretty adequate for Christmas season. You created us as embodied beings, O Lord. You placed us within a physical creation, declaring it's a good thing. Therefore, it is without shame that we acknowledge our need for food and shelter and clothing. For it's those same needs that teach us to ever look for you for our provision. You created us also as souled creatures, hungry for knowledge and beauty, nurtured by music and story and artistry, informed by the act of creating. You designed us body and soul with inbuilt need for work and for rest, for fellowship and for play, for the meeting of each of these diverse needs requires at times the purchase of goods and services. Therefore, before we venture into this day of shop, seeking things necessary for the care of the body, and soul center our hearts again in the knowledge of who you are and of who we are in you, that we might engage in our commerce not as unquestioning consumers but as conscious curators of your blessing. For ever since that tragedy in Eden, our relationship to things has been upended. Shame, insecurity, fear, envy, vanity, and pride. It now threatens to nudge us from the right posture of grateful stewardship. Constant calls to consume, surround, and assail us, proclaiming that with one purchase we might be perceived as more successful, more fashionable, more desirable, more cool, until even our right longings for affirmation and love are leveraged against us, skewing our desires that we might mistake wants for needs. And are tempted to define ourselves not by our adoption as your sons and daughters, but as the shallowest measure of what we have and wear and drive. Root us rather in you, O Christ, that we would not fall prey to such false witnesses playing upon our fears through the blare and glare of ads and images that fail to account of the existence of the soul or through the deepest needs of creatures created to inhabit eternity. Speak us the heartbreak, O Lord, of trusting in things that cannot hold the weight of our greatest hopes. Spare us the heartbreak, O Lord, for chasing after things that cannot bear the burdens of our greatest sorrows as our hearts will be most fixed on what we most treasure, kindle instead our love for you, lest we set foot in stores or shop online. For if we love you best, our spending of money will become a natural expression of our best love and a welcome opportunity to learn and to practice our faithfulness. Give us grace, therefore, to accept with grateful thanks that which we are given. Teach us the difference between appreciation and idolatry, between holy enjoyment and wanton indulgence, between thanksgiving for your provision and misuse of the resources with which you have entrusted us. Tune our consciousness still that they thrum to the resonant tones of your spirit. Teach us contentment. Teach us generosity. Let us delight in giving to others as you have delighted in giving to us. See, that's the reality that we come to this Christmas season with, a story that God has first given to us. That's what Christmas is all about. Go read Philippians 2. Jesus, in his efforts to save you, quite literally simplifies and shares. He lays aside his glorious status at the right hand of the Father and takes on the form of a slave, of a man, of a fleshly being. He enters into the brokenness of the world and Jesus lives the entirety of his life, simplifying who he is for the sake of sharing with people, many of which will take what he gives them and reject it or spit on it or not use it for what he intended and he never stopped giving. That's our Messiah. And I'm just telling you, if you want the life of Jesus, you cannot have it without following the lifestyle of Jesus. It's not possible. And the current Christmas lifestyle that you and I swim every day in is often not aligned with the lifestyle of our Savior. Do you want to see Jesus simplify and share? Because it's what he's done for you that you might have the hope of eternal life. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna have a time of reflection and maybe Jesus is just making something abundantly clear of what you need to simplify and maybe you just need to spend some time praying about that. Maybe you don't know of how Jesus has come to save you, and this is something that you want to do right here. I'll be here to pray for you. But this is your chance to say, Jesus, what is competing for my allegiance, and how do I simplify and share? Father God, we thank you for this season of reflection. And God, there are so many things that have to get done. God, there are family events that need to be tended to. There's food that needs to be cooked. There's diapers that need to be changed and carried with us everywhere we go. There is so much to weigh on our minds, but God, help us not to let those things choke out like the thorns your word and your communication. God, may we become just hyper aware of what you are calling us to do and the voice you're giving us. God, let us be a church that hears you this Christmas season as we follow what you've called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.